0: All right, good morning, guys. Happy first day of October, by the way. I felt a, uh, a hint of fall in the air this morning. I guess that's as, that's as good as we can hope for, being down south. Let me, uh, let me open us in prayer before we get started. Father in heaven, it is indeed a privilege to gather as your people this morning. Thank you. For this opportunity. Lord, we have been pulled this past week in a number of directions. The world has demanded our attention, our focus. And Lord, we come asking to to have our focus reset. Lord, we need to be recalibrated this morning. To have your priorities, your mind about things. We are needy in this regard, Lord. Would you come by your Spirit... And give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are capable and that want to embrace truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know how many of you have experience in the maritime world, meaning out on the oceans and seas and large waterways, so you may be unaware that there exists something called the rules of the road. Its real name is the International Regulations for the Prevention of Collisions at Sea. I'm sure you've heard of this. Um, it's, it's an internationally recognized document around the world. It's published by the IMO, the International Maritime Organization. And what this document does, this publication, is it sets out rules for navigation for all ships operating out on the waterways from the smallest of craft up to the largest of supertankers. If these vessels are going to be operating successfully in proximity to one another and alone out on the oceans, they have to be intimately aware of this document and they have to abide by by these regulations. And in a sense, our passage today is much like the rules of the road for living as God's children, for living as members of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 18 is where we're at, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And this is the fourth great teaching discourse in Matthew's gospel. You remember that there are five, this is number four. And in this chapter, Jesus provides what could be his most foundational teaching on what it should look like for us to navigate life with each other and individually in this thing called the kingdom of God. One commentator called this chapter, the single greatest discourse our Lord ever gave on life among the redeemed people of his church. This is a significant chapter we're going to be looking at. We're going to actually be looking at the first 14 verses here in Matthew 18, and I've broken it down, if you look there at your notes, I've broken it down under four headings. The characteristics of kingdom children, the treatment of kingdom children, the radicalness of kingdom children, and the security of kingdom children. So let's look first at verses 1 to 4 at the characteristics of kingdom children. Verse 1 At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now when a passage begins with a phrase such as, At that time, our our ears should perk up and we should immediately ask the question, At what time? Because it's probably going to help us see some things. And so we get the answer if we glance back up into that last episode in chapter 17. You, you will recall that Jesus had reminded his disciples that he must go and die in verses 22 and 23. And then they had arrived in Capernaum. And Jesus had used this opportunity, this, this paying of the temple tax, as an opportunity to demonstrate his ultimate authority over all things as God's Son. And yet, at the same time, his utter humility in deferring to the authorities, in paying this tax. Pastor Peter referred to it as, he deferred his authority. I think that's right. He deferred his authority. And so, at that time, in verse 1, it means they're still in Capernaum. And, And so, this question the disciples are asking, and really, the entirety of this chapter is against the idea of this backdrop, or against this backdrop, of worldly kingdom privilege. And yet, Jesus has demonstrated his humility. And so they ask the question, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's as though they're saying, You've told us, Jesus, you're not going to be around much longer. And so we're kind of wondering, Who's going to be top dog around here in this organization? Who's going to have prominence in this group? And their question reveals they've not really been paying attention to what Jesus has been teaching about those in his kingdom. The characteristics of those in his kingdom. They're asking the question from a self-seeking, prideful, earthly mindset. Their focus is on prestige and power and all of the false expectations of what the Messiah was supposedly supposed to usher in when he comes into his kingdom. By the way, this is not going to be the only time this topic comes up. This will continue to be a favorite argument and discussion for the disciples. Right up until even the very night before Jesus is crucified are they asking this question about greatness. But perhaps in this moment they think that since Jesus has just rebuked Peter, as Satan himself, if you remember that back in chapter 16, and up to this point, Peter had pretty much been the de facto leader, and so Jesus had rebuked him as Satan. And so perhaps they think, well, now's the time someone else can have a shot at the top gig. But either way, the question is coming from prideful motives that are at complete odds with, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. From chapter 6 or in chapter 10. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. They've missed the reality of what kingdom life means And they're focused instead on self-promotion. And I have to say that we as a culture, as a society, we know something about self-promotion, don't we? It's pretty much in our DNA these days. We capture ourselves in pictures called selfies. (laughs) Perhaps the word selfie would be more apt as a diagnosis of where we are collectively. Selfie. We have our own personal media And advertising platforms called Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and we love to get likes and shares and rack up the followers and retweets. We are our own promotion agents these days, and we're really quite good at putting forth what's best about our lives. I I never, rarely, do I ever see posts that, that say things like, Man, I just blew up at my kids for the third time today. What a wretch I am or piles of dirty dishes in the sink, or dirty laundry. You don't see that, that kind of stuff. But it's not just social media. Some of you probably not even own social media, but it's not just social media. It's an actual face-to-face conversations. We love putting ourselves in the best light. We love to maneuver ourselves, where if we say just the right prompt, folks might give us a little bit of praise. Just ask yourself, I I ask myself this, do you find yourself in the middle of conversations thinking of ways to turn the talk back toward you, toward your stories, your experience, your latest whatever? Are you a talker? Are you a listener? And if you're not sure about the answer, ask someone really close to you to give you an honest answer. Don't blow up at them when they give you an honest answer, but ask them. They'll tell you. But whether it's social media or socializing pride, the, the thousand-headed monster, I've heard it referred to as, is ever lurking, ready to grab the spotlight. But we need to recognize that in the kingdom of heaven, there's only one self-promoter. It's not me, and it's not you. And so Jesus decides, it's time to bring the disciples down a notch or two, and he does so with a stunning object lesson. Verse 2 says, And calling to him a child, he put, he put him in, in the midst of them. The parallel account in Mark chapter 9, it tells us that they were in a house, and that Jesus actually took the child up in his arms. And I'm a visual guy. I like to try to picture these scenes as they unfold. And so this is complete speculation on my part. But imagine Jesus stooping to pick up this child, him or her, holding him near. And he looks into the face of this little one with with eyes full of trust and dependence and vulnerability. And he turns to his disciples in verse 3 and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Talk about upsetting expectations. He doesn't even begin to address their question. He goes straight At their hearts, unless you turn from your self-seeking, pride-filled ambitions and assume the lowly place of this child, you're not even going to be in my kingdom. Jesus is smashing their idea of kingdom privilege. He's saying, You want king uh, you want greatness and privilege? Is that what you want? Then kill all ambition for greatness and privilege. Jesus completely inverts the concept of status in our world. He completely inverts it. It's as though he says, you keep maneuvering for prominence, for recognition, and you're going to prove you have no place in my kingdom. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a profound statement. This is on the level of significance of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You remember what he told him? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the level we're talking about here. Now children in that day were at the bottom of the societal scale. The lowest in the hierarchy. No rights, no privilege. They were not given any thought in matters of significance. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says to you and me, become like this child. You want to do life in my kingdom? Humble yourself. Be meek. Be mild. Recognize that you are needy and vulnerable. These are the characteristics of kingdom children. Assume the lowest position. Don't try to market yourself. Don't try to put yourself forward for others to marvel at. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It is a lowly road that leads to heaven. But Jesus is not done resetting assumptions about kingdom life and he's, and he's not finished with this illustration he's going to turn now to how we treat one another look at verses 5 to 7 in the treatment of kingdom children verse 5 whoever receives one such child in my name receives me but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now, now notice what Jesus has done here. He's gone from making a point in reference to the physical child in his lap to now speaking about spiritual Children, meaning His disciples, Christians. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child, such as what? The one such as the humble believer in the kingdom. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in in me, The controlling factor, the, the controlling clause here is who believe in me. The term children is by far the most used description of Christians in the New Testament. By far. Jesus himself has already used the phrase little ones to describe believers back in chapter 10. When he said, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you he will by no means lose his reward. As Christians, we are God's children. And so Jesus has transitioned to speaking of us as such. He's referring to his disciples now. And he's using very serious language here. Notice the role that Jesus assumes. Whoever receives one such child, one such believer, in my name, receives me. The word receive here, it means to welcome or embrace and Jesus is saying, how you receive Christians, other believers, how you treat them, is how you treat me. He's already said something very similar before to his disciples. He said, whoever receives you, receives me in chapter 10, verse 40. Now, we, we need to, to slow down here just a moment and, and, and take, a, take a pause and let this fall on us with the weight it deserves. Think of the past couple of weeks in your own life. Think of all of the interactions you've had with other believers, with, with other Christians, online, online and in person. When you were interacting with them, when you were serving alongside them, when you were blessing them, when you chose to not listen to them, Or when we choose to assign faulty motives to them. When we do all of these things, Jesus says, you're doing that to me. I needed to hear that. We need to hear this in today's world. How we treat other believers is exactly how we treat Jesus. The young, the old, the rich... The poor, the hard to get along with, the easy to get along with, the talker, the listener, the gracious, the not so gracious, the theological novice, the theological giant, those who look much like we do, those who look nothing like we do our attitudes and actions and posture toward other believers is in equal measure toward Jesus. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck And to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This particular form of capital punishment was known to be used by the Romans. Basically, you have a a gigantic stone weighing up to a thousand pounds that was pulled and turned by a donkey used for grinding wheat and grain. And so you have this huge stone attached to you. You'd be taken out to the deepest part of the sea and thrown in. And you sank like a rocket, you can imagine. What a horrible way to die. It's even horrible to to consider. And yet, look what Jesus is saying. It would be preferable, Jesus says this, it would be preferable to leading a believer into sin. I don't know that Jesus could, could have the warning sirens go off any louder here. The red lights are flashing. He's emphatically saying, be careful how you treat one another. Be careful how you influence one another. There is much at stake. As Christians, we have been joined to Christ. It's a, it's a doctrine that doesn't always get a lot of attention, but it's absolutely foundational. Paul tells the Galatians in two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Jesus is reminding us of this reality. We have been so closely united. Christian, you have been so personally united, so intimately united, that whatever we do to a brother or sister in Christ, we're doing it to Jesus Himself. If that's true, and it is, if we don't want to experience this thing that Jesus is equating to being drowned, we should want to know how to avoid this, right? How, how to avoid leading a believer into sin. And I think we know for the most part, we can outright tempt directly someone into sin. A, a young man could lead a young lady into immorality or vice versa. A husband or a wife could lead their spouse into falsifying a document, like a tax form. Those are the easy ones to spot. Direct temptation. But what about indirectly? What about leading someone into sin indirectly? And this this is a broad category, many possibilities. But the one that seems to pop up regularly is, is in the area of our Christian liberty. Our Christian freedom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. That is, all things not prohibited by God are lawful for me, but that doesn't mean I should go and do all things. The question we should be asking ourselves is how will this particular action, if I say it or do it or not do it, how will it affect other believers? That's a question we don't ask enough, I fear. I've heard people say things like, if they have a problem with me drinking, that's their problem. You may have heard something similar to that. And that may be true. Maybe it is their problem. But you need to know that's not the tone of Paul in Romans 14, really the whole chapter there, but verses 13 and 21, he says, Let us decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And then he says, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It is good to lay down our liberties for the sake of another believer. It is good to give up a certain freedom which you may feel absolutely free to enjoy. So that someone else who may not hold that same conviction would not be led astray. Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. We live in a fallen world. Temptations will come our way. But in light of the warning Jesus gives us here, we would do well to be ever on guard. Ever on guard in considering how we treat children of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is now going to turn the spotlight on personal sin. He had just said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Look at verse 8 and the radicalness of kingdom children. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now we've encountered this this language before from Jesus back in the Sermon on the Mount, when he taught when Jesus taught against lust, and this is very similar wording. And if you read commentaries on this passage, most commentaries at this point are quick to point out, and rightfully so, that Jesus is, is not being literal. Here, right? He's he's not telling us to go start chopping things off. And so they say something like this They say, Jesus is just using hyperbole. Jesus is just using hyperbole. And when I read that, I cringe. We remember who we're talking about, right? The Lord of the universe, the Lord of language itself. Is choosing to use language in a way that stretches our minds. Now's not the time to take a sigh of relief and say, Whew, Jesus is just using hyperbole. We should get nervous. We should be moving to the edge of our seats here. Jesus is using hyperbole. This is this is powerful. Jesus isn't having fun with embellished rhetoric here. You don't think the seriousness of sin is less than what Jesus is trying to communicate, do you? Like he's just exaggerating. When I was, when I was deployed to Japan in the late 90s, there were a number of off-base, out-in-town altercations, usually involving younger Marines, usually who had consumed a bit too much alcohol. Um, Saki, the, alco- the the Japanese um, rice wine, was the favorite. And so the, the the altercations out in town, these instances, they were increasing. And the base commanding officer, he decided, you know what, enough. He issued a direct order that no one would be allowed off-base. No liberty, no leave, complete base lockdown. Now, we all thought that was pretty drastic, right? If if you're deployed away from your family for six months, being stuck on a base is not the place you want to be. You want to go out and experience the culture. But he, he took this drastic step, and it was a severe approach, but he did it in order to prevent what likely would have resulted in an international incident at some point. And that's that's the idea here. Jesus is calling us to take drastic measures to avoid falling into sin's traps. Perhaps you are a guy who struggles with pornography. Do you have a strategy to deal with that? You still have a smartphone? If so, why? Oh, you say it's drastic. Have you installed accountability software on every device you have so that someone gets a printout of every website you click on? Oh, that's drastic. Do you have a real-world practical strategy to deal with sin in your life? Or do you think you can just manage your sin? And perhaps you're a woman who struggles with contentment Are you resting in God's provision for your life? Do you have a strategy for defeating the sin of ingratitude toward God? Or are you content to live in the suburbs of sin, thinking that that's a a safe place to be? And let let me just be quick to add that both of those examples could be Interchanged between men and women. The issue is not the particular sin. It's whether or not we take sin seriously. And let me also say that fighting sin begins on our knees. It begins and ends by the power of the Holy Spirit coming into us and giving us the ability to defeat that sin. But notice, notice that Jesus doesn't seem to be worried about being called a legalist here. Jesus is being very practical. He's focused on us, on calling us to be radical in not giving Satan any advantage. I can tell you as a military man, you don't establish your fighting position where you know the enemy has an undeterred avenue of approach. That's foolish. You don't leave gaps in your defensive perimeter. That's foolish. You know what happens when you expose yourself to enemy fire? You die. You die. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon put it, as only Spurgeon can. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and only the violent will win it. A heart-searching contention against sin and revenge against iniquity in our own souls must be carried out. For men will not go to heaven sleeping. These are not times in which you will be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. He that would win the heavenly race must run for it. He that would get to heaven must fight for it. Jesus knows nothing of a Christian who tolerates sin in their life. Lastly, let's look at verses 10 to 14. And the security of kingdom children. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Notice that Jesus hasn't quite let go of the disciples' pride and ambition. Why do I say that? What, what's one of the first effects of pride and arrogance? Is it not that we look down upon others, think less of others? If you put yourself on a pedestal, the only option you have for dealing with those around you is to look down upon them and to speak down. To them. And that's exactly what Jesus is addressing here. See that you do not despise one of God's children. And the word despise here, it means to look down upon, it means to think less of, to have little regard for. Do not think less of your brothers and sisters in Christ for any reason. Remember that all of this is in the framework of how to navigate life as God's children as kingdom members. And look at this remarkable reason Jesus gives for not despising in verse 10. Quite remarkable. For, or because, I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, some have taken this verse to mean that every single individual Christian has their own angel, their own guardian angel. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Hebrews 1.14, in referring to angels, says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels certainly play a role in guarding us, in protecting us, and I, th- I think perhaps we don't, even, we, we don't even think enough about Angels. And these heavenly creatures, they spend their time in the presence of God. They are beholding the face of God, Jesus says. And they're there to serve in any capacity as God sees fit. But I've heard it described as more of a zone defense than one-on-one coverage. And I think that's, I think that's probably truer to reality because some of y'all would need more angels than others. Right? Right? <laughs> if you're honest with yourself. And I'm putting myself in that category. But, but these creatures, they can be dispatched to handle any situation God deems. To include situations when God is displeased that His children are being mistreated and being despised. How... Precious and prized must we be as God's children to have our own personal security response force of angels ready to deploy on our behalf. That's why you better not despise another believer because we are highly valuable to a Father who cares enough to act on our behalf. And so then Jesus takes this notion of being valuable and and secure and protected, and he's going to amplify that with this parable about the lost sheep. And guys, this is a magnificent picture of the love and preserving power of our Father. Verse 12 says, "'What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray?' And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Notice here that it's, it's not some hired hand, but the shepherd himself who is intimately aware, so intimately aware of each of his sheep that he immediately notices the absence of just one. This shepherd cares for and protects and watches over his sheep with a keen awareness for the slightest issue that might arise. And when he sees that one has, been, has, has gone astray, he doesn't count it as a loss. He doesn't say, oh well, sheep have a mind of their own after all. Who, who am I to go involve myself in the sheep's desires? Is that what the shepherd does? Thankfully, no The shepherd launches himself into action. He goes in search of this one who is so precious to him. And when he finds it, there is much rejoicing. There is much celebration. It brings to mind the party that is thrown in Luke 15 when the prodigal son returns and the father celebrates. Now I need to address something here in verse 13. There are some who would point to that little word, if... In verse 13, and if he finds it, and say that that implies we can't be assured of our salvation. We may wander off in sin and ultimately be lost because it says, if the shepherd finds us, which has to mean he may not find us. But is that the point Jesus is making here? Is that, is that what Jesus is communicating about God the Father? I don't think so, and I'm going to give you two reasons why. Why? The first and most obvious reason is that this is a parable using as its reference a human being. Which means this man does not have ultimate exhaustive power and authority. He's a sheep farmer. He has limited capacity for search and rescue operations. It may very well be the case that this man, though he cares much for his animals, it may be the case that he actually loses an animal from time to time. It would have been unnatural if Jesus in this moment said, the shepherd unfailingly always finds the sheep. That would not have worked in this setting. But notice what Jesus does say in verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. What's that so referring to? Is that so referring to the shepherd's ability to find the lost sheep? Is Jesus saying, if he finds it, he rejoices over it? So it is not the will of my Father that one of these little ones should perish. Or does the so refer to the shepherd's unwavering, unfailing, and concern for his sheep? Is Jesus saying, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? So it is not the will of my Father that one of these little ones should perish. I think it's the latter. Jesus wants us to see that just as a shepherd cares for his flock with a tenderness and compassion that translates into action on their behalf, so too... And so much more does God the Father protect and preserve His little ones. And the second reason I don't think that if means we can't be assured of our salvation is the overwhelming testimony throughout Scripture that God doesn't merely try to save His people. He actually accomplishes it. From beginning to end. And I want to point to one text as an example and I know just giving one example on a topic like this doesn't begin to cover it but it's all we have time for but the passage I want to point to is is pretty powerful and it actually may have been the very words that Jesus had in mind when he gives the illustration of a shepherd and sheep turn to Ezekiel 34 Ezekiel 34 verse 11 Listen to just how effective God is at finding and keeping His sheep. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. Listen. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. God says, I might rescue them. God says, if they're willing to be rescued, then I'll rescue them. God says... As long as I don't have to interfere with their wills, I will rescue them. Is that what it says? I will rescue them. So will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them. And that's powerful. I can imagine, remember I'm a visual guy, I can imagine a little sheep who has wandered off has been caught up in, in brambles, torn by the thorns of this world, dirty, scared, and there, far from safety, the great shepherd finds it. And so gently does he pick it up with such compassion and tenderness. Perhaps the little sheep is even struggling and he brings it back to the safety of the flock. Restored. I will rescue them, God says. This is our Father in heaven. And this is what it means to be secure as God's children. This is good news. This is sweet, precious, faith-sustaining good news for sheep who are prone to wander. Well, Jesus has shown us much about what it means to live in his kingdom this morning. In a world that is constantly vying for us to join a movement or a cause, most of which are flowing from godless worldviews, we are in constant need of having our priorities, our focus, our attention reset and recalibrated. Living as children of the kingdom is not an add-on to life, guys. It's not something we just kind of attach to what else is going on in our lives. As this passage shows so powerfully, it is an all-encompassing, totalizing renewal of our hearts and minds. And it is a complete reorientation toward the things of God. And it's rooted in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, that's where we will stop today. And let me just say that for the next few weeks, don't know how many yet, uh, we're going to take a break here, a short break from Matthew, and we're going to do a, a quick study on uh, the Reformation to go along with the, uh, the preaching series as well. Okay? So at some point, we'll pick back up in verse 15. So, thank you guys.